Experience the beauty and emotion of Lent and Easter with Christianity Today's newest devotional, Easter, in the everyday. Thoughtful readings from a variety of pastors, theologians, and writers invite you into the emotional stages of Christ's journey, from humility to hope to love. Beginning on Ash Wednesday and ending at Pentecost, this digital devotional is perfect for individual or group study. Get it today at orderct.com easter24. Welcome to the Table Podcast, where we discuss issues of God and culture. Brought to you by Dallas Theological Seminary. Welcome to The Table, where we discuss issues of God and culture. I'm Mikel Del Rosario, Cultural Engagement Manager at the Hendricks Center. And our topic on The Table podcast today is fighting human trafficking in your city. I have two guests coming today via Zoom. First guest is Rebecca Jowers. Rebecca is the Assistant Dean of Students at Dallas Seminary and the Founder and Executive Director of the Poema Foundation. Welcome to the show. Thank you. It's great to be here. Yeah, it's good to see you um, on the show. Um, I know we've talked about having you on the show for a while, so I'm glad we finally got you on. And we also have another guest today. Um, Our second guest is Taylor Ann Weaver. Taylor works in global trade at Ernst & Young, and she's also a lead volunteer with Poema Foundation. Welcome to the show, Taylor. Thanks, Mikkel. I'm looking forward to discussing human trafficking. Well, we just want to dive right in. And Rebecca, I want to start with you and ask you um, to just give us a little background on how you got involved in this whole area of fighting human trafficking right in your city and in our surrounding area. That's a great question because it's definitely not what I had planned for my life. I'm a mom of four daughters and used to be an educator. I taught math and science in both of public schools, private Christian schools, and University of Texas at El Paso. And so I was an educator, stayed home 13 years. I was blessed with that time when we started having a family. And my, my kind of midlife challenge was, what am I going to do now that my children are entering school full-time? My husband challenged me. He goes, what are you going to do now that the youngest is going to school. And I said, what do you think I'm going to do? Grocery shopping, laundry (laughs) dishes. Oh, and then there's laundry, you know, same, same uh, mom things. I had always been teaching during that time, Bible studies at a women's study meet in my home for 16 years, but it really was a challenge. My husband gave me like, what's next in this new season of life. And I ended up at Dallas Seminary because I really didn't want to teach math and science the last part of my life. I thought I want to have more of an impact on where people spend eternity. So he says, you love teaching God's word. Why don't you go to Dallas Seminary and get your master's? That was on my bucket list. I'd started a master's in developmental mathematics. And so I ended up at Dallas Seminary and through my time there, got introduced to the topic of human trafficking. And when I left Dallas Seminary, my goals of getting equipped to teach God's word and just teach Bible studies or go back to teaching in a school setting where I'm teaching Bible all day instead of math and science um, took a huge change because God had placed this burden on my heart to do something about this injustice of children being sold for sex. So actually a pastor at my church 
asked me, what are your goals after seminary? And I said, well, my big, hairy, audacious goal would be to open a safe house for survivors of human trafficking. Hmm. And once those words came out of my mouth, it was like, <laughs> I have those back. I can't believe I actually spoke <laughs> what had been in my head hidden for several years. I just didn't hmm. think I'd, I didn't have the confidence that I would be able to do something like that. Hmm. And so he just looked at me and he said, really? And I thought, yeah, I know I'm, I'm crazy. And uh, we ended up going to China on a mission trip. And when we came back, he invited me. And this is just a warning to people. When your pastor invites you to um, to a meeting to join a team, beware, because you never know where God's going to lead you. So he said, I've been wanting to start a human trafficking ministry at our church under the umbrella of child advocacy centers. Um, I'm sorry, under the umbrella of just children's ministry. So we have uh prevention, um, crisis pregnancy center ministry. We have adoption, foster care. And I want to start an anti-trafficking ministry um, to help protect children. Do you want to be on the team? I said, sure. You know, I've played sports my whole life. I'd love to be on the team. And when I showed up to the meeting, it was me and Pastor Rod. And I thought, I must be early. I don't see the team. <laughs> and um, actually, I left that meeting thinking, I think he wants me to start a human trafficking ministry. And so really, that's how it began. It was it was going on a mission trip with my pastor. He said, you know, I saw leadership on your life. I saw this passion that you have for justice and to be a voice for, for these children and women and boys who don't have a voice. Mm -hmm. And, you know, the next day after I shared my, my vision of that, he just sent me an email and it was one sentence said, so follow your heart as the Lord leads. And that was the one vote of confidence. I thought he thinks I can do this. And so uh, Poema actually began as an anti-human trafficking ministry at a local church here in Dallas. And then once I realized this is way bigger than one church, I stepped out in faith to start the nonprofit. That's, so that's kind of the history of how Poema got started. Wow, that's amazing. Well, tell us a little bit about what the organization does now. Okay, so we started off with me being an educator with education. Mm -hmm. So prevention education to, is a huge passion of mine, a big part of my heart. If we can prevent the problem from happening, it's much better than trying to have to clean up the mess afterwards. So we started off just with education. We had 25 people come to our very first meeting, which was me emailing my friends saying, hey, I'm teaching about the dangers of human trafficking in our community. Mm -hmm. Do you want to come and learn? Invite your friends. Mm -hmm. And more than 16,000 people about the dangers of human trafficking. So it's a big portion of what we do. And we also have a community outreach. We want to engage, you know, the, the vision God gave me was the body of Christ coming together in the Metroplex to be a voice. And so that's kind of how Taylor got involved. But we have an outreach ministry where we take posters of missing children throughout the Metroplex to hotels, truck stops, convenience stores. And this is done primarily through church partnerships. So it's another big thing. We've helped rescue 263 kids off the streets. 146 of them were either sexually exploited or trafficked. So that's a big part of what we do and where we have the church involved. And then a third thing that we do is we have a safe house. So they started referring girls to us. And so we had a home donated, fully paid for, fully furnished. Wow. And we provide aftercare for survivors, women that come out of the life. And a fourth pillar we are just launching is trying to address the demand. So the reason mm. kids and women and boys and girls are being sold is because there's people that want to buy them. Mm -hmm. And men are primarily are the ones driving the industry. They're the mm -hmm. buyers. So the only way to stop human trafficking is to stop the demand. And the only way to stop the demand is to change the hearts of men. 
So in order to do that, our strategy would be to open a home for boys and the target would be young boys aging out of foster care who have nowhere to go, who don't have family support and have a really discipleship mentorship uh, home where they're mentored by men. They're able to get education, jobs, um, training, and hopefully get plugged into a local church and um, change the heart of these young men before they get into a lifestyle that either they become a buyer or also um, you know, potentially a perpetrator. Mm-hmm. So that's kind of our four big pillars that, that uh, we do other things, but those are the four main pillars that we, that we address with one. Mm-hmm. Now in the human trafficking space, there's a name for, for buyers, right? Do they call them the, the Johns or something like that? Yes. And I don't like that word because it's kind of this, um, a John. So, you know, like Jane Doe, Okay. A John could be anybody. So, but honestly, they're perpetrators. And so mm-hmm. in, in our industry, we are trying to change, but yes, you know, they call them a trick, a trick, you know, and then there's a whole vocabulary mm. if you're in the life. Hey, I'm going to turn a trick. I've got a John, you know, but, but to me, there's an anonymity, you know, this anonymous person, a John, but you know what? Pastors are Johns. Uh, mm. Church leaders are Johns. Mm. Homeless men are Johns. It's, there's a whole array of who are the buyers. And we are an organization who loves men. We want to protect and pray for men because they there's this whole shame aspect. There's a great book called um, Samson and the Pirate Monks written by, um, oh, his name just left me. Um, he's a pastor. He is an, I am, he's a video on, um, I am, you know, I am second video, mm-hmm, Nate mm-hmm. Larkin. His name is okay. Nate Larkin. And he started a ministry called the Samson society. So he was a pastor of a church and for five years had a porn addiction and actually stepped out and started buying women, almost lost his marriage, has two children, mm. but it's a beautiful redemption story of God shining light in an area that was hidden in the dark in his life. Mm. And he now is a ministry to men. You know, we love men. We want men to be able to admit their sins and their areas of weakness so God can do a work in that area. Mm-hmm. And so that's why I don't like calling the buyers Johns. You mm-hmm. know, they're people, they're men with stories and their own brokenness and their own addictions they're struggling with. Mm-hmm. Well, you mentioned Taylor earlier. And so I want to uh, throw it over to Taylor and just ask Taylor the same question I asked you in the beginning. Taylor, how did you even get involved in this whole area of fighting human trafficking in your city? Yeah, sure. It's actually a backstory and it started when I was 12 and I first, someone I loved dearly had told me that they were sexually abused as a child. And um, at 12, hearing that, it really devastated me, especially someone I love so greatly. And then, you know, in teenage years, you hear about sexual abuse with, if that's friends, you guys have these conversations and then things occur at parties and that sort of thing. And unfortunately, yes, that happened in my group as well. Um, And then you learn that this is on a commercial level, that sex is being sold and it's primarily women and it does happen to boys as well. Well, these thoughts never left me being up close and personal with these people I love and hearing the effect it had on them bothered me greatly. Um, I I have at nights lost sleep over this and I've constantly thought about it ever since that time. I've never done anything until last year when I was speaking to my husband and I was in another place that I was in really upset and and I couldn't uh, stop thinking about it. So he was like, you need to either do something about this or you need to learn to control your thoughts better. Well, that wasn't occurring clearly. Mm. (laughs) So I was like, okay, I'm going to jump in. And Mm -hmm. I just did a Google search. I live on campus at Dallas Theological Seminary with my husband and Pro Emma came up first, which was wonderful because I 
meeting Rebecca, I feel like we have kindred spirits. So it's been amazing talking to her and working with her. So last year, I, um, when I looked at Poema, one of the volunteer um, options was to do an outreach. And so we went with Mansfield Bible Church last November and we did an outreach to look for missing minors. And that just changed um, the way I saw everything. And I just knew I had to get more involved and I couldn't just sit back anymore like I had the past 15 years. Wow. So how long have you been volunteering with Poema? Since last November. Okay. Now, what does a typical day look like for you as a volunteer? So we we do it once a month and we do it on a Saturday. You you can choose which day you want to do with your church, but this seems to be the prime day and the best day. And you really want to go in between the times that people are checking in or checking out of a hotel, right? This is a prime mm-hmm. time. So 11 a.m. or 3 p.m. Um, so you meet up at the church and you guys you know, pray and that sort of thing. And we, we have four people to a vehicle and each person has a role that they play. So after you pray, you leave and you go on your routes and there are routes that are provided by Poema. As Rebecca was saying, it's hotels, convenience stores. You can go to sex shops. Two months ago, we went to a strip club. So um, places in your area where this is happening, which is occurring with these young kids or minors, I should say. Um, so once you go out on your route, let's say you, you go to a hotel and you go around twice of the parking lot. And what's, what's happening is one person is taking intel. So they are writing down suspicious license plates that, that you would question, why is this car at this hotel? For instance, for instance, why is a Range Rover at a Motel 6? Granted, that doesn't mean that they're participating in this activity, but it is something that we've learned from data that or that's been collected that these are the types of vehicles to be looking out for. So you make two laps and you write that down um, so we can do uh, research with that later. Um, while that's occurring, you have someone praying, another person praying in the car. You need to cover this with prayer. I've learned this from Rebecca. It is all in God's timing, and that can be difficult when you want to go in and see what everyone is doing in each hotel room. If, where are these kids? Um, the driver, of course, will stay in their, in their seat if anything were to occur so that you guys can get out and leave. Nothing like that has happened. And then another person is observing um, the parking lot as well. But the two individuals, we always use the buddy system. So you'll go inside and you talk to the clerk. And I actually have a sheet just so you can see. Um, This is what we would show them. It's a poster of the kids. And this is actually one from last month that we used. And you just say who you are, that we're with Poema and we're looking for these kids. There is a tip line at the bottom and they're able to, to call it anonymously. Um, while that's occurring, both of you are observing the clerk, the front clerk and people in the area. So is the clerk paying attention to the kids? Is he look, he or she looking, um, at one for a longer period of time, these sorts of things and making mental notes. If they have not seen the kids then that's okay. You ask if they can leave the post, you can leave the poster and they can hang it up or if they could monitor this. Um, obviously if they've seen the kids, then we need to report that. So this is what occurs at each stop. Now, obviously a gas station, you don't necessarily need to drive around two times, but you're looking for suspicious license plates and that sort of thing. And so um, once you go to each of your stop, this can take around two and a half to three hours. And then you get back to the church and we debrief and pray and wait for the next one the following month. Wow. Wow. So you're kind of like a a private investigator almost. (laughs) doing good secretly and secretively. Uh, do you feel any, any danger at all in what you're doing? 
Uh, the first few times I did, um, and depending, sometimes, sometimes, and then the, I think the more comfortable you get and the more courage you get, um, it's not as scary. And I haven't mm-hmm. had anything where someone's like charged us or anything like that, but mm-hmm. it can be. Hmm. Yeah. You're like a private investigator. You're like a, uh, a detective. Um, Rebecca, can you tell us a story about uh, when something like this happened and then you actually got to see somebody rescued out of human trafficking? Yes. So I want to address one of the things that Taylor said. We actually partner with an organization called For the One, and they are all private investigators. Mm. And so we don't ever do anything dangerous. Like our teams are trained. You don't go talk to a pimp. You don't walk up to a girl. You know, all our the only thing we do on outreach is we go in, we hand a poster to the clerk. We say, Hey, do any of these people look familiar to you? But we're trained not to engage. That's not what we do. We always call law enforcement to come in. If we do get eyes on a minor or a clerk recognizes someone, we, we give all that information to private investigators that are licensed. And then they follow up on the tips, meaning they may go rent a hotel room at that hotel. They are going to be the eyes near. So we really encourage to keep our people out of danger because we're using just general citizens, you know? And so that's a big, a big, um, like I've told Taylor, like I've had to have conversations with some people that break protocol. They're not allowed Mm. to serve on outreach. So we want to keep everybody safe. Really. We're just letting the, the, the community know there's missing kids. They're, they're, they're coming to your hotel. Most likely. Could you look at these pictures and post it. And then if you see someone call the tip line. So there's a tip line they call. And so if they do see danger, they're supposed to leave. And so um, one of the things I love about Taylor is her passion and her heart for this. She's been phenomenal. And it's such an encouragement to us to have servants like Taylor who God has really called forward to, to be a voice in this area. So I just wanted to affirm you, Taylor, that you have been incredible. She got her whole church motivated and she served with Mansfield Bible, but now Dallas Bible Church is a new partner because of Taylor's leadership. So way hmm. to go, Taylor, on that. And thank <laughs> you for what, what you've motivated and got your church involved and got them outside the doors of the church serving the community. So, um, so you so, guys are the eyes and ears of we're the, the community. We're the eyes and ears. Really, we are the voice to equip the, the, the community to be the eyes and ears. That's We want everyone in the Metroplex to be able to recognize a victim of human trafficking. Mm-hmm. And so mm-hmm. I'll tell you one story that's kind of interesting. Um, one of the hotels that some, it was around the 635-75 interchange. And we went into several hotels there and our volunteers, someone like Taylor went in and said, do you recognize any of these children on this poster? They're known to be in the area. And the clerk looked at them and said, you know, I don't recognize any of these people. However, three men came in and rented a block of 12 rooms. And we know they have girls in there and we don't know what to do about it. Mm -hmm. And so from that information and that tip, our private investigators that we partner with were able to go to the hotel, rent a room, observe. Now, if they had seen a minor, we would have called law enforcement immediately to go in because you don't have to prove force, fraud or coercion with trafficking if it's a minor. The day that child turns 18, it's a much more challenging effort to get them out of that life. Mm -hmm. And so the women we saw that night were definitely adults. They were not children. But what we learned from the license plates, so here's an example of the license plate information. 
we were able to run those license plates and we have a whole team of volunteers that do this. And from one of those names, um, there were 48 phone numbers associated with one of the owners of the vehicle. And this is the vehicle parked in one of those rooms that we knew was a, was a PIM. And from that license plate, we learned 48 phone numbers associated with his name. 24 had ads online where he was advertising women and girls for sale. So mm. we take all that information, tie it up in a bow, give it to law enforcement, and then they follow up on those leads. And they were actually already looking for this man. So it just helped to build their case. So that's just one example of what we do with outreach. Now I'll share a story of a, a local girl who got rescued. And um, it's very interesting. So those license plates actually help girls get rescued. I got a phone call from one of the PIs that said, keep the license plates coming today. Two pimps got arrested and two girls got rescued. Hmm. We don't always know the details because we can't, when it's an ongoing investigation, we can't share a lot of those details, but I can also tell you just recently, five young girls got rescued. One was an infant, one was a two-year-old and the other were several young teenage girls. And hmm. this is happening because our church people are getting into the community writing down license plates of suspicious vehicles and the, and the police are following up on that. Hmm. Um, now I can tell you about a local story. Um, there's a young girl that was being trafficked in Dallas and her father was not in the picture. He was in jail, got arrested. So you got a single mom with three kids trying to pay the bills. She and her older daughter who was 16 started walking the streets and um, trying to get money to pay rent and buy food and this little girl, when she turned 12, 13, they said, you're old enough, you need to come and help. So she was working the streets of Dallas. And what I love about this story is that it was actually a man that helped her instead of buying her. And so she hmm. was on a street corner and a man that drove to work every day, drove home from work every day, would see her standing on that corner. And he knew what she was doing because he'd been trained to understand it. And rather than look at her through a set of lenses of, hey, here's a bad kid. Here's a person supporting their drug habit. He saw a little girl who needed help. And so one day he just stopped and he wrote his phone number. I'm not recommending this is the best way to do it. It'd be better to call an organization like a trafficking organization that knows how to intervene. But this, but God used this and he just, he, he wrote his phone number on a piece of paper and he stopped. And of course she thought, I've got a job. Mm -hmm. And so instead he handed her the piece of paper and he said, I know the life you're in is really difficult. If you ever need help, call me and I'll help you. So he gave the phone number to her. She saved that phone number for several months. And then after several bad incidences of um, violent buyers mm -hmm. and things happening that put her life in danger that I won't share, mm -hmm. she was desperate and she called that phone number. And so this man came and got her and ended up taking her to a shelter. From that shelter, she got referred to a trafficking organization from that organization, um, they provided school and GED, but they didn't have housing. Housing, safe housing is a huge gap in coverage. So they referred her to us. So she ended up coming and living in our safe house. And we partner with a lot of different nonprofits. So she continued to go to this other nonprofit for counseling and to get her GED, but she had a safe place to live while she did that. And so she stayed in our home until she got her GED. And actually this young girl was in Bible college. She was hmm. in Bible college hmm. when she ended up coming to us. So she knows the wow. Lord. She has a heart, but she'd been sold since she was 12 years old. So she also struggled with a sex addiction. So it's a long road to recovery. Once a child gets rescued, you think their life's just going to be easy. These women will struggle for years because often their abuse started when they were much younger 
prior to ever getting recruited into the life of being trafficked. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Well, I want to come back to the whole safe house thing and how you minister to people um, on the other side of being rescued. But you mentioned churches and churches getting involved. And so I want to ask Taylor, how did you get your church involved and what do you do uh, to help more people in in churches uh, know about these opportunities to help fight human trafficking in their city? Yeah, so after I did that one outreach, I reached out to Rebecca and we spoke and then, you know, talked about us, me adding my church and in, to be involved. And I very quickly went up to the pastor, I think two weeks after and asked if we could partner and if they would meet Rebecca. And I hope I didn't annoy them too much, but I just, <laughs> I very quickly was like, we need to take action here. And so it was as simple as them saying yes, Rebecca meeting with them. And I, I know very quickly they bonded and um, that the rest was history from there. Um, so, yeah. So at your church, I know I've seen on Instagram, I've seen you with a booth at church. Like what kind of, what actually practically, if somebody wanted to get their church involved, what would that look like? Um, I would say to reach out to Rebecca and to have her come come to the church and speak to the pastors or over the phone or that sort of thing so that they can partner uh, for the booth in particular, that was to recruit volunteers at our church to start going and doing an outreach. Mm -hmm. So uh, does the church do things in groups to help or is it more individuals who would sign up to help? Right. So um, the, for the outreach, we do it in the vehicle. So you would sign up and we'd all go out in a group and do it together. There's different opportunities that you can volunteer with that poema, but that's the one specifically our church helps with the most. Okay. Well, let's, uh, I want to come back to that, but let me go over to the safe house and uh, the ministry that Poema does to people on the other side of being rescued. Rebecca, can you tell us a little bit about that? It's definitely the most challenging part of our ministry and what we do is working with trauma, you know, survivors of trauma. So we have a home and we currently have uh, four, four beds available. And basically we do a lot of reparenting in a sense. So many of these, these young girls that we help either didn't have, well, I'll tell you the first five survivors in our house were actually trafficked by their family, whether it was mm. a biological parent or an adoptive parent. So what I've learned and God showed me is this is actually an orphan ministry. So these, mm. these, these women don't have safe families. And so as we opened the home, which was actually donated by, by a lady in the area. When I was speaking at a church, she came up to me afterwards and said, I, I, God's been preparing me for three years to give my house away, and I'm pretty sure he wants me to give it to you. So it's how we got our home, which was wow. a whole nother amazing story. <laughs> um, but what I found is as the holidays were approaching, November came. So most people want to be home with their family during Thanksgiving, during Christmas, including staff. Well, when you run a residential home, we had 24-7 staff. We had to have somebody there to mm -hmm. care for the girls. So I hadn't thought that through in the beginning. And so so often at Thanksgiving, I would just have the girls from the state house come, come spend Thanksgiving with my family. Sometimes that was very painful for them because they then saw what they don't have, a family, a mom, a dad, mm -hmm. kids, you know. And so, And a lot of the women have children based on being in this life and the nature of what it is but they're not able to parent their children for, for, for many different reasons. So holidays are really, really challenging and really difficult. And the churches have been wonderful. We've had other church uh, volunteers invite the girls to their home because eventually, you know, I need some 
some um, holidays with my family without, you know, just always having the survivors. They've always been a huge part of our, of our life. And my family's been wonderful, really, to open up their, their hearts to them as well. And what we do, it's very much a family, you know, family oriented. My, my, my family has to support me in what I do 100%. Um, they've been very gracious, but the church has played a big role in that too. So we reparent, we help them get, many of them, we help them get a GED. Some girls go to college. Some, what the biggest challenge is them overcoming their trauma so they can actually even get a job. So we had one girl that got a job, but every time a man, she was at a fast food restaurant, but every time a man came up to order, she got triggered. If it was a particular man that looked like someone who had been an abuser, she she would dissociate, become nonverbal and couldn't couldn't do her job. So overcoming the trauma is the biggest challenge for the the women that we help. And and it takes a lot of counseling and to get them to a point where they can move on with their life. From Christianity Today, this is Mike Cosper. I'm the director of CT Media and one of the hosts of The Bulletin, a podcast about the people, events, and issues that are shaping our world. Each week on The Bulletin, we bring in a variety of guests for conversations about the most important questions Christians are asking. Our hope is to encourage the church to live with a faithful presence in a fallen world and to cut through the polarizing noise that's dividing not just the church, but the communities around us. New episodes of The Bulletin come out every Friday, so subscribe today, wherever you get your podcasts. Mm -hmm. So you talk about this whole restoration journey. Uh, What are the different components of that? Boy, so immediately, so we kind of talk about it in phases. So phase one is a girl or boy. I'm going to speak specifically to girls since that's who we help just rescued off the street. Mm -hmm. So you need a 30 day stabilization program, basically 30 days for her central nervous system to come back to equilibrium, to even evaluate what her level of trauma is. Does she need mental health care? Does she need drug rehab? So that 30 day evaluation time, we call it stabilization is just to evaluate and see what is her level of trauma? What does she need? What are her needs? And then from there, you want to get them transitioned into a program that's going to meet those needs. And then that typically can be a year, it can be 18 months, it can be two years, that first level of really therapeutic care, that's different for every woman based on their journey and, and their story. And then from there, we, they, we have found that they still need, even, even though they graduate a program after a year or 18 months, they need additional help. And I, I call this the transition transitional phase. The transitional phase would be like when you launch a child off to college, some kids do it great independently, but I know I've got four daughters. Some have needed a little more support and help and advice and guidance. And so a transitional home really offers those things. You know, you you are there still to continue to just advise and monitor and also mainly to provide community, you know, to continue to have someone to walk through life with you where you're not just by yourself. So that's the transitional phase. And then finally, you would graduate to independence where you're living on your own. Um, Our goal would be to have them have a job that pays a livable wage. That's a big challenge. You know, the biggest thing for these girls to overcome is I can go turn a trick and I could make a thousand dollars maybe in 15 minutes or 30 minutes, or I can go get a job flipping burgers and make 10 bucks an hour, eight bucks an hour. So it's so challenging to get over that mindset of it's just, it's just easy to go turn a trick and make some money and pay my bills 
as opposed to this long road of recovery, getting an education, finding a, a, a livable wage job, that's a huge burden to overcome for the women. How do you determine the line between someone who is being trafficked and somebody who is just in that lifestyle um, that they, a, they themselves, you're trying to turn them around? That is a really, really great question. And what I have found that, and I love the way you worded that, Mikkel, because a lot of people will say, what's the difference between human trafficking and prostitution? And we don't usually use the P word or um, when they say prostitution, they mean someone choosing that life, someone who's out there because they've made that choice to be there. And what I have found, honestly, I, I have never met with a woman, whether she, we call them independent sex workers, someone who is on the streets without a pimp overseeing her and forcing her to do it. So when we work with women who are working independently, if you look back in their story, I would say 95% of them have already had an abuser and it might be higher than that. And so that abuse set them up to being independently on the streets. It could have been a pimp that they got away from, but then they have no way to make any money. And they're so broken that all they know is that work. That's often the story that I hear. And so then you begin by ministering to them and letting them know you have value, you have worth, you're loved. We can help you meet your needs. We can help you. Many of them, in fact, we recently had a woman in our home for a year who had that story. She had been in the life. She had, she had been abused by her uncle who used to drive her to church, molest mm -hmm. her on the way to church, pay her, drop her off at church. And so that, that was, that was how she even knew she could get money for that. In fact, wow. she was even taught if you do this, you better make sure you get something for it. I mean, that's what, that was her teaching as a young girl growing up mm -hmm. in her home. And so now this woman was under a pimp for a long time. And then she was so tired. She said, I am, this is not what I want to do. I'm tired of this life. She came to Christ and she's, but then how do you change? How do you change? You're in your fifties. You have, don't even have a high school education. How do you get a job that pays a livable wage? So you can leave the life. And so what we do is, is a lot of the women that, that may be in that life without a pimp, we just try to meet their needs and we try to love them where they are. We try to offer them hope. And we try to help them get education or training where they can really move forward and change their life and, and do something different. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Let me go back to Taylor. And Taylor, I want to ask you, what are some things that you've learned by being involved in fighting human trafficking in your city about the, about the people who are in this, um, in this lifestyle? Oh, gosh. I feel like Rebecca's taught me this the most, is, most with the perpetrators. Um, that they really are the ones that need prayer the most and they're the ones, not the most, but they're the, the issue, right? So um, learning their side of the story that they have their own story has really changed my mind about them as hard as that is hearing what they're doing to these minors, um, but also the depthness of these minors stories or human sex trafficking stories. You just don't know how far back this goes and it is truly everywhere. And like, it's in all 50 states. It is not just in India or other countries around the world. Um, so there's the pervasiveness of it, the pervertedness of it, and the the layers to it, starting from a young child and, and the home life and psychology and all of that has taught me. Yeah, it's been very eye-opening. Have you ever worked with somebody who was rescued but then wanted to go back? Um, yeah, on our on our on my first route with our church this was so exciting we had gone to a 
a bus or a dart station and put up a poster. And two days later we heard that the girl was found and I was just elated. I was just, Oh my gosh, this is meant, this is good. This is meant to be. And, um, then two days later I found out she ran away and I didn't know that was something that occurred. I thought these kids went, once they were found, it's like, I need to go home. I need to be with my family, but that's not the case. There are so much, so much background story. You have no idea what they're running from or what is happening behind closed doors at their house. So Yes, she went back and that was devastating to hear, but that is when my eyes were open to, to the depthness of this for those kids. Um, I've heard her go back and forth and that, you know, I can't hear too much about what, what, what happens with these kids, but I was given that information. So, um, last I heard she was on a decent path back, but all I can do is pray and continue to keep finding the least of these, you know? How do you help somebody like that? Who's afraid to go home? Maybe. Oh, that's a great question. Rebecca, can you dive in here? (laughs) It is one of the hardest things that we do. Even the women in our home, I'll share a quick story. We had a lady in our home abused um, in her family, broken family, parents divorced, then an abusive boyfriend in high school. He gets put in jail she leaves that city for safety, moves in with her mom and stepmom here in Dallas. Stepfather had been abusing her. So abuse, abuse, abuse. Then her savior, she was 18, got kicked out of the house. Her savior, who was a pimp, said, come live with me. I'll take care of you. I love you. All of that. So she's, she then um, is with him for five years and she wants to commit suicide. She's like, he promised me it wouldn't be this long. He promised me he would take care of me. I'm having to take care of him. He's telling me I have to do this or we can't pay the bills. So a lady in, she, she was actually really struggling with anxiety and thinking of taking her life. And she, she actually Googled essential oils cause she sure she had heard that would help. And a lady in my Sunday school class sells essential oils and she ends up going to her house. And the, the lady just engages with her and my friend and starts hearing her story. And she says, she recognized this girl's being trafficked. The girl didn't even know it. She goes, you need to come into this. Would you come to this training event with my, that my friend teaches? She actually came to our Human Trafficking 101. Mm-hmm. Now she's 25. The light bulb went off that what was happening to her, my boyfriend's a pimp. I'm being sold. He's trafficking me. So I, I built a relationship with her over a year. She finally trusted this enough. She left that life and came and lived at the safe house, got her license to cut hair. We're thinking, this girl's great. She's out of the life. Everything's going well. Well, what she didn't tell us is one day on the way home from work, her pimp found her and he walked up to her in a gas station and she heard, bet you never thought you'd see me again. And she turned around and her pimp ate her up, hit her on the head. She had a cut on her head, was bleeding. We didn't know. She didn't tell us. Came to the safe house. We could tell she was dysregulated. And, you know, we just thought there's all kinds of triggers. It could be a seasonal trigger. It could be, we, you know, because of the time of year, it could be. We didn't know exactly. So we could tell she was not herself, but she didn't tell us she ran into her pimp. Hmm. Two weeks later, Mikkel, she ran back to her pimp. You know why? Hmm. The fear of, I might run into him. I don't know when I'm going to see him again. I don't know when he's going to show up. She couldn't control that. But what she could control is, I can make that not happen. I'm just going to go back to him. So she went back to him and we were devastated because we loved this woman and we thought she was on such a good path. And so we didn't hear from her for about two months and we prayed and we prayed and we prayed. And of course her phone changed. The pimps take their phone, dump them, get her a new phone. They put trackers on them. 
About two months later, I got a text from her. I'm safe. I'm okay. I want out. And so Hmm. she actually was brave enough to go to law enforcement to file a complaint of trafficking against her perpetrator. He's still on the streets. They couldn't build enough of a case to get him arrested. So there's a lot of frustration. So what we did is she came back to us. We went and picked her up. And it's just really, really, really hard for the girls to leave the life for a lot of reasons. Sometimes if they're kids, they're running from something dangerous. Sometimes the women go back because they feel like that's all they're good for, or they're so helpless or hopeless making $10 an hour. I'm never going to be able to live on my own. Sometimes it's because they truly miss their pimp. Some of the pimps have shown them love like no one else ever has. He gave, I had one lady say, my pimp was a good man. This pimp was in his seventies. This lady was in her thirties. He said, he gave me food. He gave me a place to live and he gave me um, a job where I could take care of my three children. He was a good man. He took care of me. And Mm -hmm. so she, she was in our safe house for a little while and ran back to her pimp. So um, on average, women will, will leave the life and go back and forth seven times before they finally get away. If they truly love their pimp, there's a trauma bond formed there. She truly loves him and cares about him. This one lady I was telling you about, she felt bad that she left her pimp. She felt bad that she deserted them. She felt bad that she had the phone he bought her. So you have to understand mm. these are not healthy people that have ever mm-hmm, seen a healthy mm-hmm. relationship. So to them, that might've been the person who their pimp might've been the nicest person in their life that they'd ever experienced. Wow. So it's really complicated. But what we do is we do not judge the women. We love them where they are. We continue to pray for them. And like the organization we partner with for the one, we never give up. We will always be there for that girl as long as she's willing to receive support. And that's a huge challenge in our ministry, honestly, is to just continue to love this broken person. Mm hmm. Well, I think this this conversation has been great because it opens it opens everybody's eyes to especially if those of us who are not working in this area and and all we know about it is you know maybe things we see on the news or in movies, um, but some people I think are really excited to get involved. Think, wow, I can actually do something, but maybe they don't really know how and they don't know what that looks like. Um, you know, they might have ideas of they're going to be kicking down doors at the Motel Six and you know, uh, or they might be actually quite afraid to to even you know write down a license plate number. Um, what what options do people have, say, um, somebody who's afraid to maybe, maybe they have young children and maybe the family wants to get involved. Maybe they don't want to be boots on the ground. What options are there for them to volunteer? That is a great question. We have a, a big array of volunteer opportunities. So number one is, is our prayer team. Our ministry would not success be successful without being covered in prayer and everything we do, we ask to be covered in prayer. So we have a prayer team. We have a monthly meeting right now that that um, is over Zoom once a month, and we have people from all over the world actually on our prayer team praying. Mm. So that's a great, that's the number one way I ask people to get involved is to pray. Um, we're also going to be taking that to the next level and here locally doing some prayer walks, prayer drives, driving by areas of the city where we are really covering it in prayer because there's mm. certain areas that are more prevalent um, to trafficking. So prayer drives, Prayer is huge, and they can be on our team where they get a, a weekly email with prayer requests and praises. And so that's a great way to be involved. Education is another way. I need more people to teach. We just recently got um, certified by the Department of Health and Human Services in Texas to train uh, health providers. They have mandatory licensure requirements to have human trafficking training every two years. I need more people to help teach. So people that love to teach and want to get equipped 
we have four, five, six different trainings. We can get them trained to teach and be a voice. Um, another way is to do outreach like Taylor does. And you can even just sit in the car and pray. All you're doing is driving to different places in town. You're not engaging perpetrators, uh, but you can even just, we have one group that they have a prayer team at their church that prays for the teams while they're on outreach because they don't want to go be in a car and be on outreach. One thing that we do with young families where we have parents and children go on outreach is we have them go to fire stations first responders. And it's so fun to see the kids. A lot of times the firemen will get the hoses out and mm. but they're, they bring the poster and they put together gift bags for the firemen as a thank you to the first responders, popcorn, movies, healthy snacks, you know, that type of thing, poster of missing girls and a handout on, on how to identify a victim. First responders are often there on the scene before anybody else. And for them to understand, to learn, to be eyes and ears in the community, looking for these missing people, children is great. So that's another way to be involved. And then at the safe house, we have people that sponsor the girls. They need counseling. Counseling is expensive. So if a family wanted to pray for a survivor and sponsor a survivor, you know, they could do that, sponsor her counseling, sponsor her incentive program. We've had churches do drives. Like we had a women's conference. They collected five to $10 gift cards that they, we then use as an incentive program for our residents. They get paid $10 to just show up at their case management meeting. So if you want to sponsor a girl for 40 bucks a month, it pays for her case management. So those types of things. And then we had a church that did a drive every Saturday in April. We had a wish list for our home, toilet paper, paper towels, laundry detergent, anything you need for your home, we need for our home. And every Sunday they had people from the church just bring um, what items for the home for a month. And at the end of that month, we had the back of, I didn't have to buy toilet bowl cleaner for six months. You know, we just had <laughs> everything that we needed food, you know, non-perishable items. So that's a great way. And then we also need people to just do maintenance on the home and teams can come in, cut the grass, do the, the, you know, take care of the bushes. We're going to get our house painted here pretty soon. And we're also building an addition of four new bedrooms and bathrooms. We'll need furniture. I have a couple of women that want to come in and do just decor, you know, decorating the home, painting the home. So any home maintenance projects we need, we desperately need. So those are just some ways. There's a lot of other ways. We have a pen pal ministry mm -hmm. where you can write words, letters of encouragement to women in the home, girls in the life, and also our staff. Our staff needs help and encouragement. We have a lot of volunteers that come to the home and they can teach life skills. Monday nights, they, we have volunteers prepare a meal and eat dinner with the women so there's, there's a lot of different ways. We teach life skills. So if you have something you want to come in and teach to the women, a photography class. Mm. Um, and we want men involved too, mm -hmm. because you know I've had a lot of men say, well, I can't come to the home. Well, they can. They go through the training. But these women need to know they're safe men in the world. Mm -hmm. And the only way they're going to learn that is to have a safe relationship with someone. So when we have men come and have dinner with them on a Monday night, and then teach a skills class. It may make our women uncomfortable. It may make our men uncomfortable, but we're all learning and we're all showing unconditional love. And so it's a big journey in the women on their healing path to be able to sit across from a man who's safe, who's safe and doesn't want something from them. So mm -hmm. those are some mm -hmm. great ways to be involved. As an amazing array of ways that anybody can be involved, yeah. it sounds like. Mm -hmm. um, Taylor, last question for you is going to be, think about where you were before, before you were involved in uh, this organization and where you are now as a volunteer, what would you say the largest impact, the biggest takeaway on your life has been being involved? Just the per pervasiveness, 
pervasiveness of it and how close it is to home. Um, it's just truly unbelievable. And that's been the most impact to me is that it's, it is truly in your backyard in all 50 States. And, um, we need help. We need people to fight for this cause more than ever. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. So if somebody would want to get in touch with your ministry, Rebecca, how could they do that? So they can just send an email to info at poimafoundation.org. It's P-O-I-E-M-A foundation.org. So if they send an information email, they can also go to our website. And if they go to our website, there's a volunteer application. It'll send them, uh, they can see all the volunteer opportunities. And there's different links there. They can request more information in a specific area. Those would probably be the best ways to get it to. And they can also call our office. So that would be another but um, there's, you know, most people typically like to get on the internet. I was going to look up our phone number since I never call it. I don't know it. Um, <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, so our phone number, if they wanted to call, would be 469-757-8888. So they could also call and get some information that way. Awesome. Well, we'll be linking to those uh, resources. If you're watching this on our website, we'll link those in the uh description and also in, in the transcript, you can check that out. And Michael, Taylor, if, oh, I, if I can add one quick thing, um, we also have Poema campuses in Oklahoma and South Carolina. And so we're not just in the Dallas area, we've been branching out nationally. So if there are even people, in fact, uh, I think Amarillo has got a big movement there, Colorado. So the Lord is moving and raising up people. And so if they're interested and they do live in another city, they can still contact us and we can reach out and, and, and have a conversation of what it might look like. Awesome. Well, Taylor, thank you for being on the show. Thank you so much. Rebecca, thank you for being on the show as well. Thank you. I appreciate the opportunity to share what God's doing. And we do thank you for joining us on the table once again today. Please do leave us a review on Apple Podcasts or Spotify or wherever you're listening to this. It really does help people uh, learn more about the show, learn that they can get this kind of content, and it does help us reach more people. So thank you so much. We hope that we will see you again um, next time on the table where we discuss issues of God and culture. Thanks for listening to The Table Podcast. Dallas Theological Seminary. Teach truth, love well.